0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramao Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I recently spoke with Yu Jong about her new book, Chinese Grammatology, Script Revolution and Chinese Literary Modernity, 1916 to 1958. This came out in 2019 with Columbia University Press. And this is about China's script revolution, how for a brief period of time, Chinese intellectuals, activists, artists, linguists tried to do away with Chinese characters in favor of coming up with and then implementing a Chinese alphabet. This book traces this script revolution's provenance, transmutations, and containment, looking at how this movement born out of phonocentrism, the idea that speech is superior to writing, and that proper, superior scientific writing systems are ones that properly represent speech. Ultimately, bizarrely and somewhat counterintuitively, wound up endorsing the simplification of the very characters it initially set out to do away with. And exploring how and why this happened is what this book really does. And if you want to know the answer to this, keep on listening because you'll hear you talk me and you through it. So, if you are interested in 20th century Chinese history or literature, the development of national literatures during this period more widely, the history of modernity, global phonocentrism, or China's reform movements, then this is the book for you. And you should really read it, because certain sections of it in particular, a GR score, a full letter from a Swedish linguist, a complete translation of the pros and cons of the laborers being in France, an analysis of sections from Yiu novels. We touch on these things in the podcast that follows, but you really need the book in order to appreciate and read and look at them for yourself. So with this, I hope you seek it out, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with Yuro Jung to talk about her new book, Chinese Grammatology, Script Revolution and Chinese Literary Modernity, 1916 to 1958. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Iroh, and thank you for taking the time to navigate life, summer plans, the ongoing global pandemic, to talk with me about your book. Thank you very
2: much, Sarah, for having me.
1: No problem. So your book, uh, Chinese Grammatology, is at its most fundamental level a book about the script revolution in China. How, for most of the first half of the 20th century, reformers waged war on the Chinese script and tried to eliminate it and implement a Chinese alphabet instead. And you sort of you mention this in the acknowledgments of your book that you first encountered the script revolution while doing your undergraduate thesis. So could you talk a little bit about this? How did you come to the topic of this book, The Script Revolution, in the first place?
2: Right. Thank you for picking up on that. Um, yeah, I've been obsessing uh, about this topic ever since an un- as an undergrad. I really haven't come very far, have I? Um, so I became interested while doing my undergraduate thesis in the question of baihua a literal translation of Baihua would be plain speech, although some people would translate it as the vernacular. Um, to be completely honest, being interested in bai hua is really nothing new, um, because there is scholarly consensus that bai hua is the building block of modern Chinese language and literature, and it is also uh, the biggest contribution of the New Culture and May 4th movements. So nothing innovative there, but... Uh, to my credit, I wasn't interested in baihua because it's important. It's obvious and indisputable that it is important, but I became interested because I had problem with it. Uh, I had problem with the discourse of baihua to be specific. So I guess I can sum up my problem as two well twofold really. The first one is. Um, the dichotomy that bai Hua, the Baihua discourse, sets up between the new Baihua, the new, the 20th century um, new culture, and May Fourth Baihua. So this this is a new thing, and it is either it or everything else against it. Um, so this everything else, that whole basket included, uh, of course, the classical and literary language, wenyan. And any number of old Baihua, such as uh, the Tang Dynasty Baihua Poetry, uh, Song Dynasty Huaben uh, Spoken Stories, and then Mingqing Baihua Fiction, of course. Uh, the idea is really radical and sweeping, um, is that New Baihua, May 4th and New Culture, New Baihua, because of its promise to pure reality, is easier to learn, easier to read, uh, more alive and democratic and... So it is capable of reviving a voiceless and lifeless Chinese writing. And everything else that came before it, before the New Baihua, is considered dead and belong to the dustbin of history. Um, and, and, to be clear, these extremely harsh words attacking uh, what stood opposite New Baihua, they're not mine. Um, I am quoting preeminent Chinese writers such as Lu Xun, Hu Shi, Chen Du Xiu, the list can go on and on. Um, the dichotomy is, is basically, as we can see, a sweeping endorsement of the power of the vernacular, um, its power in creating a live national language and literature. And that discourse, again, is nothing new uh, from Italian to Turkish to Japanese. Basically, every national, um, modern national literature relied on some version of the um, vernacular discourse. Um, So if that kind of dichotomy discourse is so sweeping, then probably it wouldn't uh, hold. And that is the case. What I did for my undergraduate thesis is that that I took um, two well-known texts, uh, two translations of two well-known texts. Uh, One is, uh, what is the the first one? right? Uh, Zhao Yuanren's translation of Alice in Wonderland Uh, It is supposedly a new Baihua translation, a celebrated one at that. Um, Then the other one is a Wenyan translation done by Lingshu of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Again, it is also a celebrated translation. Uh, What surprised me, I was doing a fairly rudimentary comparative reading of the two um, at the level of language specific. What came as a surprise is not so much that the dichotomy, the promised superiority of New Baihua didn't really deliver, that it is not, in fact, easier to read. Um, it is not more accessible to a modern reader like myself. Um, maybe part of the credit should go to Ling Shu as a masterful translator, really, um, or his help, um, who helped him navigate the world of foreign languages of which Ling Shu did not know a word of. Um, <laughs> so uh, the real surprise was not so much that the dichotomy wasn't uh, what it was, but that I couldn't really uh, be certain at all times that the New Baihua uh, translation was more oral, more colloquial than the supposedly classical literary language. So at times, the classical language sounded more colloquial to my um, sensibility at that time. Um, so as you can see, even the baihua the very basic self-proclamation of vernacular was in jeopardy, was not so secured. Um, and I've always had this problem with the term vernacular itself because it signals definitional trouble. Um, it denotes two meanings at the same time. Uh, For one, it is common speech that is susceptible to a certain level of standardization. For another, it is vulgar speech, which by definition resists standardization. So there you go. Um, The promise to channel pure, unadulterated um, orality is by definition near impossible. Um, then th- I've only accounted for you the first problem that I had with Baihua. I really had a lot of problem with it, I guess. The second problem uh, that I had with Baihua was the, dis- the discourse is that um, the new Baihua was not what it claimed to be. Um, a good example would be Hu Shi, one of the fathers of Baihua uh, literature. Uh, he had produced a series of writings on Baihua Uh, From his uh, some modest proposals for the reform of literature to his later writings on uh, the Chinese Renaissance, what these writings made abundantly clear was his uh, strong faith, almost religious faith, in New Baihua and its promise of plurality. What they also made clear, perhaps in the less obvious but endlessly, Tiltulating way for me is that the nature of New Baihua is really not pureality, pure but a colloquialized written language, Yu Ti Wen, um, that utilized elements of Old Baihua. Um, so the discrepancy between Hu recommendation of pureality pure and his actual practice of, you know, writing literary language from um, Mingqing fictional um, novels that he admitted himself doing, um, that discrepancy was just too obvious and it raised a simple question of why? Why did new culture elites have to hold on to a name that promised plurality, but at the same time they know all too well that that promise was not to be delivered and they were already writing a colloquialized written language? And um, was Baihua a bad faith? Enterprise to begin with? And oh, where did such fascination with phonocentrism, such insistence on privileging speech over writing, where did that really come from? Um, so, and incidentally, I'll, I'll try to wrap up this origin story. This is Revisionist history—a person, an author really loves, right? Um, I, I I also discovered around the same time that Zhao was, or around the same time that Zhao was translating Alice in Wonderland, he was really young, newly appointed to Tsinghua, um, uh, also busy getting married at that point. Um, he was also engaged in, um, actually, correction—he was a leader of the so-called Chinese Romanization movement that aimed to get rid of Chinese characters. Um, to implement a Chinese alphabet in its stead, and also he and Hu were good friends, and they agreed. Uh, they they went they went way back to their Cornell years. Um, they even wrote a, an essay together as early as 1916, arguing for the elimination of the Chinese script. Um, which that essay came um, came into the book as a cornerstone of um, the timeline of the entire project. So, long story short, uh, everything started with the problematic Baihua, and it was simply shocking um, to an undergrad that both father of modern Chinese linguistics as and as well as the father, one of the fathers of Baihua um, literature, both of the fathers wanted to abolish characters. I just had to keep digging and find out why and how. Yeah, so that's the long origin story.
1: Perfect. And you said, you know, you said that's your origin story, but you touched on so many things that come up in the book, right? National language, accessibility, the problem of how to make language accessible, colloquial language, standardization, orality, the Romanization movement, which we will get to very shortly, the new Bai Hua discourse, which comes up a little bit later. Uh, But so all of these things you just touched on um, really bring us beautifully into the book because these are all sort of core (laughs) key parts of the book right of this book explores you know through all of these things um, as you say in the book chinese grammatological literary and cultural modernity and how script literature writing politics and orality all intertwine and they all intertwine along um, as you say in the book along three trajectories and it's through these trajectories that you sort of build the book they're kind of like the spine So as a way of taking us into the book proper, um, you wrote, could you walk us through what the three trajectories are? And it's sort of a big thing, right? It's a big question because it sort of asks you to set up the book. But what are sort of the three through through lines that this book follows?
2: Thank you. Um, Great. Um, This will give me an opportunity to draw you a map of what I did the mess that I created. Um, the the three trajectories. Simply put, um, the first one is the script revolution itself. What happened there, and how did it happen? The second one is the coming together of script and the literary revolutions. What I call double revolution. So basically, the second at uh, the second tier is what about literature? How did script impact literature? And the third one is the uh, theoretical implication of the script revolution these are the three trajectories and they developed in response to three of my main questions really the first one is so what's up with script revolution um what happened and why did it happen that way and uh, an extension of that uh, question would be because i doing very preliminary research already made it clear to me that the script revolution was not just a fringe phenomenon. is not was not a crazy idea spun out of thin air by a genius figure like Zhao Yannun. It's not that case. It's a, a collective, concerted, and even bipartisan project. Um, CCP, uh, Chinese Communist Party, and the Nationalist Party disagreed on so many things, but they agreed on the one thing that Chinese characters will have to go. So the 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 project was huge, um then an extension of that my my question at the level of the script revolution itself was if it was really that big then why was it not better remembered and why do we not talk do we not talk about the legacy of the script revolution more? Um, And just to give you another example, it's one of my favorite examples, really, to show you how big the movement was, there there was this uh, public letter in uh, 1935 signed by 688 Chinese intellectuals, activists, artists. Um, That letter is entitled uh, Our Opinion on the Promotion of the New Script, Xinguanzi. Xinguanzi is the name of the Roman Latin script and orthography, really, produced by the Chinese Latinization movement, which I guess we will also get to in a bit. Um, so these these are not just any number and just any regular Joe. These are familiar um, luminaries, such as Cai Yuanpei, Li Gongpu, Lu Xun, Mao Dun, Ba Jin, and even uh, Gu Moruo. And then um, you also have Jiang Qing, um, incidentally. So it, it would be an it would not be an exaggeration, let's just say, to, um, to categorize the script revolution as a litmus test for progressivism. And if you, you are a self-respecting intellectual at that time, chances are that you'd you'd be signed on to either the Chinese Romanization movement or the Latinization movement. Um, whether or not you supported the script revolution becomes a symbol. Um, so this is the first... Trajectory of this script revolution itself, and the second question is a little bit impossible, but <laughs> necessary. One is, how did it impact literature? Um, it took me a really long time to figure out um, how to reconcile the obviously self-contradictory project projects. Really, uh, one trying to get rid of Chinese characters; the other one producing a national literature using, ostensibly, characters. I mean, how do you write Chinese literature when Chinese writing was about to be thrown out of the window? Um, What was really mind-boggling to me was how those top-notch literary and intellectual minds such as Lu Xun uh, did not see that these two projects, um, The Script and Literary Revolutions, as mutually exclusive Um, Lu Xun is a fun, um, interesting example. He became really obsessed with the Chinese Latinization movement toward the end of his life. He penned at least eight essays, if I'm counting correctly, um, in the last couple of years of his life. And he he's Lu Xun. he came up with colorful um, and you know poignant attack on the old Chinese script, calling it a case of TB, terminal illness, and calling people who wanted to hold on to those old characters as um, crazy and a lot, losing their mind, that's the term that he used. Uh, yet, he kept writing, attacking the Chinese characters in characters. And, I just couldn't really understood, understand why and how Lu Xun did that. But a mind, a, 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 another voice in my mind, kept saying that it's Lu Xun, so there must be some rationale, and it probably made sense um, to be loyal to both projects of script and literary revolutions. And um, I was fortunate, though. Um, it was a torturous process to come to terms with how that reconciliation was possible. And that brings me to um, the one key concept of phonocentric antinomies that um, denote both both the negative and positive aspects of phonocentrism. I guess we can talk about that um, a little bit more later on. And that is key to how phonocentrism was mobilized and started transmutating and if i'm allowed one more word on the um, the second trajectory on uh, literature and script revolution is that these transmutations uh, were as important if not more as the originary impulse of getting rid of chinese characters Um, yeah so and the third one is the big theory question that was also difficult to grapple with. But I guess we can talk about that um, when we come to it.
1: Sure. And maybe I love the way that you set that up, that the middle trajectory you described as being the really, really tough one, but the theory also hard, but in some ways almost seemed less hard than the second one, (laughs) um, which I love because I know I would personally probably put the third one first. Um, But anyway, thank you for for setting that up. because we sort of come then to both sides of the bipartisan conflict. I love thinking of it that way. Right. Uh, because chapters one and two then set up both sides of this the script revolution. They set up the two combatants of the revolution. Um, and as you say, you know, when you were describing all of the different figures who were involved, and you you know you hit on almost everyone. Everyone seems to be involved, um, as you said. You know, no self-respecting, you know, progressive revolutionary would not be involved in this. I think that one of the great things about chapters one and two is, by the time you finish them, of you know, it seems um, almost very logical to the reader. Like, yes, of course, we're going to get rid of Chinese characters. This is obvious. This is clearly a bad system. So, <laughs> with that, we come to the first side, right? The first, the first wing of this conflict to get rid of Chinese characters um, in chapter one with the Chinese Romanization movement of the 1920s. And as you said, this is endorsed by the Kuomintang, the GMD, or the Nationalist Party. And they wanted to get rid of uh, Chinese script and bring in the National Language Romanization Script, or GR. Um, So their plan was to transcribe the new national pronunciation based on the Beijing dialect. And in 1928, the GMD officially recognized this as their their script. And much of this chapter really works to unpack what was at stake in this script. Um, You know, not only how they were trying to appropriate the Roman Latic alphabet for Chinese writing, and this is where I think um, the whole, of course, it's natural, obviously we're going to want to do this, comes in. But how the GR was really trying to claim alphabetic universalism, for the Chinese alphabet. So could you talk a little bit about this? How would you sort of describe GR? Is there anything I haven't quite captured? And where do we see the Chinese bit
2: for alphabetic universalism in it? Right, thank you. Um, what you have said about GR is, it's actually plenty. Um, um, I probably couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, the, the two, to answer the question uh, in, a, in one sentence, what GR was really about and why the Romanization um, movement was so special is, is maybe I can try at this. The, the, the GR system was the, the uh, beginning of alphabetizing Chinese, is the first salvo of attacking the old script and converting to the phonocentric regime. But what is really interesting is that it was more than a story of orientalization or self-orientalization. It's more than a colonial story. Um, It tried to uh, stake the Chinese bid in this game of phonocentrism, of taking writing um, as a technology and finding the most uh, scientific, hence best, Technology and the Chinese uh, intellectuals, Zhao Ren specifically, was of the mind that the Chinese uh, new alphabet could just do that. And in in that sense, I realize the sentence is really long. Um, In in that sense, uh, the alphabetic universalism was first upheld and then was challenged, then was cancelled out by the Chinese bit. Yet phonocentrism. Was not only alive and well, but reinforced. Uh, so that would be the uh, the conclusion, and why I think the Chinese romanization movement was really special. But to get to there, maybe I can elaborate a little bit more on uh, GR. Um, so GR is short for 国语罗马字. Um, literal translation would be national language romanization script. Uh, it's the crown jewel of the Chinese Romanization movement and brainchild of uh, a, a coterie of Romanization revolutionaries. Um, GR was endorsed by the nationalist government in 1928 uh, and was named as the second form of the national alphabet. And our Zhao Wenren was so excited about uh, at the prospect of GR not only being recognized officially, but also at its prospect of becoming not second, but first, um, one and only Chinese alphabet. Uh, There was this uh, diary entry that I really love. Um, He wrote in the GR system itself, saying that GR was uh, officially announced on September 26th. Hooray! In English, three exclamation mark. Um, That's the level of excitement, euphoria, really, thinking that Chinese, the Chinese alphabet was ri- ri- within reach. Uh, a common understanding of GR is that it's sophisticated, but it's too difficult and impractical uh, to use. Lu Xun called it a plaything of a scholar's um, study. Of course, Zhao Ren would not uh, like that. He and his friends, uh, Hu Shu was one of them, and also Lin Yutang. I remember digging in the archive and uh, coming across uh, GR letters that they wrote to each other. They would quiz each other and asking, uh, how did I do? Am I um, passing the GR <laughs> <laughs> test? Um, so these are all great minds, and Ling Yitang and Zhao Yiren are trained linguists, and even them will have to think about whether they got the romanization system correct. That goes to show that GR was not that simple, right? So uh, there are rules to abide by. One biggest feature uh, that stood out, which became um, really a point of contention in the competition uh, for the Chinese alphabet was its tonal representation, the tone in letter system, uh, meaning that uh, Zhang Yen was of the mind that There should be no diacritics in the romanization system. Keep it neat. Um, And to mark tonal values, we should use different spellings. Um, uh, uh, Not to bore your um, listeners with the details, but you can um, easily run through these um, rules. One extremely oversimplification that I can tell you about, about the tonal representation, is that the first tone, we know that Mandarin there are four tones. The first tone would be uh, basic form, say ma 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 ma. Ma would be ma. Ma second tone would be uh, mar, adding an r to the basic form. And the third one ma would have you double doubling um, the vowel maa. And then ma you will have to figure out in the context what kind of consonant to add ending to the basic tone. Uh, basic yeah uh, the form the basic form. So that is just the beginning of, of um, the GR rules. I can go on and uh, we would be here all day, or night. But the real stake, so <laughs> GR is difficult, but the real stake is not that it is official. It was official. Theretofore, the highest uh, recognition any Romanized, Romanization system had received from uh, the nationalist government or any government for that matter. Um, the real stake was... Not that, nor was it its difficulty or sophistication, but the Chinese bid for alphabetic universalism, something that you already teased out, um, the bid, that bid is twofold. One is that it wanted to substitute Chinese characters with the Roman Latin alphabet. And the second is uh, to stake a competing claim of alphabetic universalism by making a new Chinese alphabet or orthography, really, as the most scientific fanaticization scheme that can transcribe all languages. The comparison would be any number of languages. Um, English and French are two that Zhao um, invoked. Um, so there's this one letter I came across in the archive uh, sent from the Swedish Sinologist Bernhard Kargren to Zhao on the question of basically what language and script modern China should adopt big topic but a very short letter if your readers are interested listeners are interested I highly recommend that letter um, it's a uh, that what the letter revealed was that within the international coalition against Chinese characters if you will there was also competition for the title of the Chinese alphabet um, so the difference between Coran and Zhao was both at the same time phonemic and phonetic. They wanted their writing system, phoneticization system, to be phonetic and be adopted, to be used for official use. What motivated GR, and by extension um, the whole Romanization movement, was phonocentrism as an abstract principle. They want practical use, but they also want to win the game of uh, finding the best writing technology to write sound, write speech sound. Um, so to, to that end, to find the best technology to write sound, any number of alphabet uh, can participate in the competition, not just the Roman Latin alphabet. So um, Water owns hubris um, <laughs> argument that there is only one alphabet should not be the final say in this competition. And if we're really serious about the game of phonocentrism, finding the best technology for it, then uh, the medium for sound transcription does not even have to be an alphabet. And that is where the Bell Labs um, speech spectrograph came in in that chapter as well. So Um, To sum up, I know I've been going on for a while, the the biggest takeaway of GR, as you already said, I said I probably couldn't have said it better than you already (laughs) did. Um, The the biggest takeaway is that the first move toward alphabetizing Chinese is that the very beginning of modern Chinese script revolution already saw both the beginning and end of alphabetic universalism. And what is really interesting is that although alphabetic universalism was called into question and canceled out uh, phonocentrism was uh, alive and very well um, so it is reasonable to not take the roman latin alphabet as the only agent um, to carry out the bid of phonocentrism and to imagine other possibility of privileging speech over writing is entirely a viable path so that's why we have all those transmutations of phonocentrism. That's how the Chinese script revolution kept on evolving.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for hitting on all the different things that are going on in this chapter, um, because there is a lot going on um, in it. As And, you know, you teased out some of the, it's one of the difficult things about talking... <laughs> talking orally about how speech is transcribed in a new form of alpha. There's something weird going on there, but there's lots of examples in this chapter of what GR actually looks like. And they are, they're fascinating to read. Um, You, you know, you touched on a couple um, so (laughs) listeners were wondering, what does that look like? Um, Definitely seek out this chapter in particular. But with this, we move to chapter two, and we move to, I think, a group of people who would definitely find GR too difficult, <laughs> too much of a plaything. Um, I don't know about too scientific, but definitely too difficult, too fussy, too, uh, too something. Um, and I'm sort of gesturing, flailing here at GR's rival, which chapter two takes us into. So in chapter two, you look at the Chinese Latinization movement, and this movement Presents itself as being quite different to GR, even though there's, you know, they're seeking also to eliminate characters. Um, so the Chinese Latinization movement, as this chapter sort of looks at, um, originated in the Soviet Union in the late 1920s, and it was endorsed by the other side, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. And you explore in this chapter how um, the Chinese Latinization movement really positions itself as being an opponent of GMD-backed romanization movement. So it, has, it had its own Latinization system. Xinwenzi <laughs> was quickly banned by the Nationalist government and, uh, rightly so, adopted as a legal script in CCP-controlled regions. And a lot of this chapter looks at the differences between the two. So, for example, um, Latinization, unlike Romanization, insisted on representing local speech, and Latinization was committed to proletarian culture, aiming to massify literature and art, to make literature and art accessible to all. So on the whole then, Latinization presents itself as a democratizing and revolutionizing sort of script, and it really positions itself against this elitist Romanization movement. So as with the previous chapter, there's a lot going on here. And again, if you want to see what it looks like, you kind of have to look at the chapter. But uh, is there anything that you want you wrote to sort of highlight about the differences between the Latinization movement and the Romanization movements in particular? I think it's really important to sort of take away about how these two are different.
0: slash
2: nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. I'm going to try one sentence blurred out again. Um, <laughs> it's the, the biggest difference, the biggest, the highlight um, that I should emphasize is the double revolution. Um, double revolutions, really, um, of the script and literary revolution. That is something that the Chinese Latinization movement definitely pride itself um, with. Um then you, you summarized it beautifully about the uh, phonocentric antinomies, basically. There is the epistemological violence of uh, phonocentrism, wanting to get rid of Chinese characters, but because of the positive aspect of phonocentrism, promising the marginalized, the repressed, an opportunity to read and write, so to um, learn and then to express on their own terms, um, very much fall in line with the bigger 20th century um, democratic and revolutionary projects. And that is the willing price that these Chinese intellectuals and intellectual, international um, sympathizers agreed upon that this, this bigger project of democracy and um, making people who they really are, allowing them live and let live, basically, that project is so much more valuable than the old Chinese characters. Again, I'm thinking of Lu Xing's essay, one of his essays promoting the Chinese Latinization, uh, saying that, sure, the Chinese characters are treasure passed down from our ancestors, but we are also treasure passed down from our ancestors. And to save us or save those dead characters, if you have not lost your mind, you should be able to answer that question immediately. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the biggest difference. And um, as Sarah, you have already um, helped me summarize the basic differences between the Romanization and Latinization. Uh, Romanization came first. I know this probably sound very confusing to people. Romanization, Latinization are the same thing, <laughs> but um, <laughs> trust us that it's not. Um, aside from the name uh, that sort of denote the same project of alphabetizing Chinese, they really disagreed on almost everything. Uh, the political allegiance is one. Um, as you were saying, uh, the Latinization, because it came uh, later in the uh, 30s, as a dissident movement uh, that originated in the Soviet Union, supported by the CCP. Of course, the nationalists were not very happy with it and they banned it uh, between 1936 and 38. Uh, The ban only lifted uh, once the uh, second United Front was formed during uh, the second Sino-Japanese War. Uh, That political difference aside, uh, there are technical um, disagreement as well. On the level of technicality, the Latinization disagreed, that, uh, disagreed with uh, the toning letter uh, system. Many people probably would. Cogren didn't like it either. Um, for the Latinization people, they thought that why bother with tonal representation because there were just too many tones, and tones are at best approximation of real speech, you're not going to get it right anyways. There are nine tones in Cantonese, six to seven tones in Wu dialect, and then maybe even 10 tones in some uh, Guangxi dialects. It's just impossible to get all of them right. Then let's just get rid of tonal representation and allow the tone to come out in the context. This is their radical approach. They are not for uh, the accuracy <laughs> of uh, tonal representation or uh, speech transcription, for that matter. And in relation to that is Latinization's disagreement with Romanization on the question of fangyan uh, I'm going to translate it as dialect. Of course, linguists argue whether fangyan should be languages or dialects, topolites. But here, um, I would follow these historical actors, their own terminology. They the, So the Latinization people thought we should allow all dialects, all fang Yan, all topolects to have their own uh, Latinized scripts so that you would have competing Cantonese new script, Shanghainese, uh, Fujianese, the list goes on and on. Um, but the Romanization people, because of their affiliation or uh, official status uh, now approved by the nationalist government they could only not only that that is that is wrong they had no not a lot of leeway in the language that they wanted to represent they switched from the old national language that was more susceptible to dialectal difference to the um, new Uh, national language approved in uh, around 1923-24 that is basically present-day Mandarin that is heavily northern uh, Beijing dialect-based. I I say that they don't have a lot of leeway because a lot of the Romanization people struggled as well. They think that we want to compete with the the Latinization people. We can also um, transcribe fang yan. Our system is far more potent than their rudimentary one, um, but just because Romanization wound up as part of the nationalist national project of language and writing reform, um, it just could not claim the the kind of linguistic and grammatological egalitarianism that Latinization could. Um, so the biggest difference, um, and this is sort of the, the crux to the difficult question that I grappled with, um, with the second trajectory, um, is the convergence between the third literary revolution and the script revolution itself. As you already said, um, it is, uh, this convergence is basically the massification of literature and art. Um, And I I appreciate you saying that um, my treatment of the third trajectory theory is uh, you know less um, what's the word diffident than my uh, my fear of the second trajectory again this is what the script revolutionaries say that uh, theory is easy but you have to show me the goods the the goods meaning the alphabetic writing how are you really going to make it happen and that is the biggest beef that I had to work with in this project of thinking through how was this good revolution really meaningful for literary writing. and um, Allow me to introduce the two uh, examples and then I promise I'll stop. Um, one is Chu Chou Bai and then the other is Xu Dishan. Both people are brilliant writers and they really worked the mechanism of phonocentric antinomies um, to link the two movements of um, script and literary revolutions together. And both of them believed in the positive side of homocentrism. They really wanted to give voice and give writing to everyone. and But that is not just it. Um, it would, If that is the case, then it would just be mass writing, everybody write. Uh, but uh, what is really rich and beautiful about the massification of literature and art uh, thoughts through in uh, under the principle guiding principle of phonocentric realism, if you will, is that it has limits. So, Xu Dijan in particular, produced this fascinating novella called Yu Guan. And if people don't read my chapter, it, it's okay, please read Xu Dishan's Yu Guan, it's a really wonderful read. Uh, that, that particular novella is uh, referential to and reflexive of of the Latinization movement and is in allegiance to the positive side of homocentrism. It wanted to empower a subaltern woman. It tells the story of a subaltern woman, but um, without giving too much of it away, um, no spoiler alert here, but um, it basically tells the story of a Bible woman, a subaltern woman. It features Minanese alphabetic Bible, but it contains no conversation, no voice of the woman, Yet nominally, it wanted to give voice to the woman. So there you go, the, the contradiction, uh, the intrigue is already there. Despite whatever goodwill these writers, these script revolutionaries, literary revolutionaries have to want to empower the subaltern, the subject, the objects of their writing, uh, they, they still have to reckon with the limit of the representative mechanism that they had to um, employ. Hence, um, in some cases, as in this particular um, novella, Xu Dijan had to silence the woman that she he wanted to empower in order for her to speak. And isn't that just beautiful <laughs> uh, con- a set of contradictory uh, contradictions to work through in order to get at what uh, these writers really wanted for modern Chinese writing. Yeah so thank you for asking that.
1: Of course and there's so much oh there's so many ways of tying this to chapter three because chapter three is can subaltern workers write? And I mean this chapter really you said, You know, uh, show me the goods is sort of a recurring thing. The theory is all fine, but what does it look like in practice? And in some ways, Chapter 3 sort of gives us a little bit of a taste of that, at least, um, in terms of what does it look like to give writing to everyone? What does it look like um, to teach this form of writing to everyone? And what does it look like when... uh, uh, the proletariat starts using this writing to write things that you yourself did not really want them to write without giving too much of this chapter away. But there's there's all of this comes through in Chapter three. Um, so this chapter, I'll just set up a little bit of the context here. This chapter um, looks at the first modern Chinese literacy program, which was designed for Chinese laborers participating in World War I. Um, And this is not a story that I knew a whole lot about, but you explain in this chapter how these workers working in Europe received their wages in a two-part structure. So part of their wage was given to them, and then the other half was given to their family back home in China, which meant that they had to communicate with their families to check that their families had received the wages, so they needed to be able to write. Um, And so this chapter really looks at the literacy program, which was brought in by the YMCA and one volunteer in particular, a Yale graduate, James Yen. So it's a fascinating historical context that you get into here. Um, But there is a connection here between the war, this really practical need for literacy and the May 4th Baihua discourse, which is something that we've touched on a little bit. But could you sort of flesh out this connection here? Where where does this what James Yen is doing and these workers
2: learning how to write how does this tie in with the May Fourth, Baihua discourse? Right, thank you. Um, that's a pointed question, and I love it. Um, <laughs> Yen uh, James Yen is really a big name. It's he is the one of the leading figures still to this day. Uh, when people talk about international mass education and rural reconstruction, James Yen's name come up, and he is now experiencing some kind of a revival, wave of revival, um, in a recent Chinese rural, uh, what's it called, the rural um, revitalization um, project. So he he he's there, He's he looms very large. Yet, uh, for someone who had such an illustrious career, he said that he owed everything to his encounter with the Chinese laborers. In World War I, um, these um, laborers—the number uh, varies. Uh, Some say it's 140,000. Some say it's 200,000. Cai Yuanpei, when celebrating these workers, famously said, "Lao Gong Shen Shen," uh, sacred laborers. He gave the number of 150,000. So, uh, one thing important to flag is that this encounter between James Yen and these workers. as we know, historically, this is, this is before the, the, these workers participated in the war. So um, the war was one of the uh, reasons leading up to the outbreak of the May 4th movement. So um, James Yen's encounter with laborers definitely predated May 4th and New Culture uh, rebranding of uh, what Baihua literature was all about. So what James Ian actually did, um, the whole thing is fascinating. And if um, your listeners are intrigued about these uh, Chinese laborers, there are new research on them. And there is even a documentary, YouTubeable, uh, on these workers. I think it's just called Lao Gong Jun Tuan," something like that. It's very well done. Um, and I highly recommend that. And again, if you don't read my chapter, um, learn about these workers. Um, So coming back to the the point of um, the the question that you asked, how did the May 4th Baihua discourse relate to what James Yen was doing here? Um, What James Yen actually did was retrospective naming. As I uh, hopefully have made clear, what they did was definitely not new Baihua. Um, so what they did, as they themselves were writing and self-reflectively writing about what they, what the language that, what language they used, they gave their writing different names, such as Guanhua Mandarin, Putonghua, common speech. And mind you, the uh, Putonghua is not uh, the same as the Mandarin that we have in mind today. Putonghua basically means a common, hard part of different speech. Um, And then they also called it 普通官话, so it means that there are uh, not so common Mandarin, right? So it's basically what I'm trying to say in the chapter, show in the chapter, is that what they practiced in writing was definitely not the kind of pure oral transcription of one's speech that uh, the May 4th and uh, New Culture Baihua discourse so very much embraced. Um, what they actually wrote was the beauty one, a, a localized written language. Um, so Yen's retrospective naming is a false categorization, promise of pure reality. Um, it is clearly an instantiation of the phonocentric desire that is so common among script revolutionaries, though Yen himself didn't really support, come out to support the script revolution. Um, he did not sign his name on the public letter <laughs> that gathered 688 signatures. Um, but, <laughs> but... The he, only one missing. <laughs> I know. How dare he? No. Um, he, uh, he didn't uh, sign up to the um, script revolution because he was signed up to the, the old mass education movement. And as the next chapter of chapter four would make clear, he could not because only the new mass education movement supported the Latinization script revolution, not the old one. And in that case, James Yen was playing by the book really. Um, so what I wanted to say is that uh, Yen uh, rebranded colloquialized written language as pure reality. As the new Baihua, um, that is um, that is telling in in uh, showcasing the success of the new Baihua discourse. But at the same time, it shows you that this new Baihua discourse is is a second and most enduring transmutation of the script revolution. That's my argument. I'm not saying that script revolution or uh, formocentrism as a principle was all there to it, to the Baihua discourse, or that um, it's the only reason for its success, um, because Baihua is not to be so easily reduced to only new Baihua. There is old Baihua and um, other uh, literary resources that one cannot ignore. Uh, What I think needs to be emphasized, to be liquidated, really, is that this... A script revolution at this particular age, because of its limits, because of its inbuilt built-in uh, mechanism of phonocentric antinomies, it had to evolve, and it found a uh, a partnership in a way in the Baihua discourse. And at this particular historical juncture, Baihua discourse is very long, of course, but at this moment, phonocentrism seemed really appealing to Baihua. when it wanted to reinvent itself, at least to the minds of the fathers of Baihua. Um, So this convergence of the new Baihua and the script revolution worked towards the success story of the new Baihua discourse, at the same time, ironically preserving the old Chinese script while nominally um, holding on to the phonocentric aspirations. So... Um, that way, phonocentric aspirations and the practice of character literacy manage to coexist. Um, and if I may, I know this is another, another long-winded answer, but I just have to highlight um, the workers' writing, Fu Xing San's writing. Um, as you said, it's one of the goods that this project of uh, the new Baihua discourse, at least for branding it as such, Produced, Fu san is one of the workers. Um, I, to, to to my limited knowledge, the piece that I included in the um, in the chapter by Fu san was the only surviving uh, composition by a worker who went to um, Europe to fought for the to fight for the work and fight for the allies. Um, this particular essay, the pros and cons of the Chinese laborers being in France was a commissioned essay uh, by James Yen. The designer was probably asking them to uh, to reflect on uh, how they could better their behavior and not to lose face for Chinese while they were overseas. But what Fu ended up writing was really remarkable. Uh, it's a critique, basically, of World War I. What he managed to convey was not so different from Liang Qichao's famous reflection on uh, World War I, uh, a discourse on maybe even on the decline of Western civilization, on the instrumental use of um, science and technology, and on the uh, unsubstantiated grandiose dream of both the celestial dynasty that is China, as well as the hubris and brute force that is the European Great War. Um, so... To conclude, I guess I can just say that to repeat Tsai Yuanpei's chant, sacred the laborers, um, these are the laborers who can write, though their writing, the actual um, nature of their writing as well as their critique might be appropriated by their intellectual counterpart to serve other projects for enlightenment project maybe, but the fact that they they wrote and they left behind their own writing is enough evidence that we should take um, take seriously the valuable lesson that um, everyone should be able to write yes
1: absolutely and I think the chapter definitely does take does take the does take it extremely seriously as it does yen's silence over the critical dimensions of of the the writings of his workers, so it's a very very cool chapter. I um, mean, you mentioned that you know this chapter sort of sets up um, what the writing of workers looks like, and you mentioned you know in that you offer this sort of you know as a as a as an example of of their writing as compared to the that of their intellectual counterparts, intellectuals, and this sort of is the other side of the coin that we get into in chapter four, which looks at again war and literacy, but at a slightly later period in the late 1930s. And this one, you know, we've been we've been talking about convergence, and this chapter is another one where we see convergence. Um, so this chapter looks at how the script revolution changes, and you see it move from one that is sort of nominally advocating Latinization into one that's really favoring character literacy in order to meet the needs of Wartime national salvation and mass liberation. So you talk here about the reconciliation between Sinwunza and Utuwen, or coll- uh, colloquialized written language that you sort of touched on and has come up a few times already. Um, and the convergence of Latinization movement, national salvation, and the new mass education movement. Just to touch on a couple of the things that are converging all at once in this chapter. Um, So there are, again, a lot of really interesting moments here. One of my favorites, actually, is where you talk about how um, Xinhwenzi is, you know, compared to um, a bayonet. Here, during the war, it's described as the people's script. It's not difficult to read, write, or learn. It stabs at tonal distinctions, and it lances square characters. It teaches everyone to read. Um, So here, we see UT Wen in particular. We see it again, it's come up before, but here it's really explored and you talk a little bit here about two novels in particular that were written using um, UT WEN. So I don't want to give chapter five the short, short end of the stick here. So with this, is there anything that you want to sort of highlight and tease out about UT WEN
2: in particular
1: before we move on to chapter five?
2: Right. Um, thank you. I didn't expect to talk so much about Yu Ti-wen already, so I guess we can be a bit more succinct here. Um, Yu Ti-wen, uh, the counterpart to Yu Ti-wen would be Wen Ti Yu, uh, so a, litera- a, a literary rendition of spoken language. So these two terms, as you can see, highlight that the colloquialization, the degrees of t- colloquialization and literariness is really a spectrum um, in comparison to. The resolute promise of plurality of Baihua, Yu Ti-Wen and Wen Tiyu um, are really more honest about the nature of um, <laughs> the Chinese modern Chinese writing, and Yu Ti-Wen is in fact the staple of modern Chinese writing. And you already said um, so so thoroughly, um, beautifully about how this this chapter is another one about all these convergences. Um, one more thing I do want to highlight is that Yuti Wen helps to bring out the third transmutation of the script revolution. It served as a, again, unexpected linchpin that connected these two revolutions of the script and literature and signaled um, that it is possible now for the script revolution, the Latinization specifically, to embrace openly, not conceptually com- in a conceptually convoluted way like Baihua. It can now openly um, embrace character literacy while holding on to phonocentric aspirations and uh, encourage, uh, in fact, mobilize wartime resistance and uh, encourage the militarization of children and then announcing the death of bourgeois intellectuals and then signal the proletarianization of Chinese literature and culture, which I should hasten to add that. Was not so much a, a, an insular um, incident; it had the global um, phenomenon to back it up. Um, so, yeah. So, does that answer the U T one question?
1: Absolutely. And it's you know, it's funny how you know you mentioned that this is sort of taking us to the third transmutation. So it's in we've sort of traveled through one and two, and now we're at the third, and this beautifully takes us um, into the final, the final chapter, chapter five. Um, And you sort of set this up and I feel like, you know, reading this book now and reading about the script revolution now, reading about it in a world where there are Chinese characters, (laughs) this is sort of an end that we knew was coming because chapter five brings us to the end of the script revolution and the decision to keep Chinese characters thus leading to the world in which we live. Um, And I love how this chapter opens because it opens with uh, Zhou Enlai's report in 1958 on the current tasks of the script revolution, where he lays out what the tasks of script reform are. And they are simplifying characters, promoting Putonghua, and issuing and implementing a pinyin plan. So characters are just, they're there, they're, they're built in. The plan is to simplify them, but definitely to keep them. So again, we come to the end of the script revolution. So there is a lot going on here. When um, you touch on you know, some of the critics of the Pinyin plan, you chart the scale and intensity of socialist script reform, and you talk about the resolution of the Chinese script revolution as a whole. And you point out that the retention of Chinese characters constituted an anti-ethnocentric, anti-imperialist critique, as well as something we've kind of seen. You've hinted at all all throughout, an implosion of photocentric ideology. So with a bang, it all <laughs> implodes. But with this, um, is there anything that you want to sort of tease out the importance of the end of the
2: script revolution um, as we are here at the very end in chapter five. Thank you, that's a, an incredibly generous a question. Um, I, I appreciate you uh, teasing out the the beginning as um, something, the beginning of the chapter as something interesting because this, to, to my mind, when I was uh, converting this manuscript into a presentable book, one thing that I couldn't solve was how did it really end again? Um, As historical hindsight, as you put it, we know that characters survived. But if it were true that 688 and more um, great minds of Chinese culture and um, art and politics wanted to get rid of Chinese characters and they cited international success stories, specifically one uh, success story would be Turkish. Um, language a script reform they said let's do it the Turkish way let's give it three months and get rid of everything and then convert to the Roman Latin alphabet it is not impossible and if my narrative was true to in any sense true to what actually went down um, the level of resolution was uh, enough was was there and for the socialist leg of the script revolution it's even more so then how did the Chinese characters survive is another puzzle um, that I couldn't wrap my mind around. Um, and I um, part of the, um, the ending that came to me, and I shouldn't say it, the script revolution has already ended, it is an ongoing process in the sense that we're still living the consequences, the legacy of the script revolution. As you said, journalized reports um, talked about the simplification of characters and then implementation of pinging. And these days, we all, most of us, at least, uh, keying Chinese characters using the index of the QWERTY keyboard. Um, that is, that is evidence enough to show you that the script revolution is with us. Um, and that's why I always um, have this grievance to air um, against people who regret the simplification of Chinese characters, regret anything that happened with the Chinese script. Um, if we know anything about the actual history of how the Chinese script survived, you should know that these are all, in the words of script revolutionaries, necessary evil that has to happen in order to even preserve the basic, the, the bulk of um, an epistemology and a culture that was almost thrown out of the window. Um, so, what I can, what I want to highlight uh, for the ending, for the theoretical part, the third trajectory is that again, it is a surprise how the containment happened. It's a, a many-fold surprise, actually. For one, formalism reached its zenith um, when the CCP took over. Uh, the the logic was very simple. They opposed uh, the nationalists saying that they were not (laughs) thorough enough. They're definitely going to deliver. That's the the logic. Um, But while phonocentrism reached its height, it also reached its end point at the same time. Um, Because never before was phonocentrism a state ideology, and the socialist PRC made it so, and that's unheard of. Um, And the Another surprise is that phonocentric regime, um, alive and well, being enforced, even though alphabetic universalism was, was um, cancelled out, was challenged. Um, this regime, it's just a surprise to me that it could be imploded from within. And a third surprise would be that it actually only took something quite simple and obvious to unravel that phonocentric regime. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the main protagonist of my chapter five, Tang Lan, um, the father of modern Chinese paleography, a brilliant scholar uh, who reduced um, the traditional six principles of character formation. Um, from Shu I'm going to uh, not translate the six principles. Uh, uh, all these six. He's saying that this is too much. Let's reduce it to three, so that we understand the nature of Chinese writing better. The three should really be pictograph, ideograph, and ideophonograph. And according to him, he is the authority on paleography. <laughs> he says that um, the percentage of Chinese ideophonograph by the time of uh, the second millennia. Already in Han Dynasty, the percentage went up to almost 90%. So to pretend that the Chinese script was voiceless, uh, that it could not uh, transcribe sound, is just mistaken. And it is remarkable how brilliant minds such as Lu Xun, as well as other well-trained linguists and philologists, would agree and pretend to go along with the simple um premise that the Chinese script is voiceless, voiceless, hence needed to be remedied by phonocentrism. And Talan is telling you that that is not the case. Uh, ideal phonographs in the Chinese tradition might be chaotic, but it shows that there is potential and we can um, scientifically reform the phonological capacity innate to the millennia old Chinese script. And this I guess this is not a Chinese case alone as well, because hieroglyphs was also understood to be voiceless. But surprise, surprise, a, a huge part of it is also is also um, phonographic, right? So one really wonders why old scripts will have to be disguised as voiceless in order for the one and only Roman Latin alphabet to shine, right? So the last surprise is. Um, probably the biggest price, also the argument of the book and the title, the problematic and maybe controversial title, um, the Chinese critique of uh, phonocentrism anticipated the post-structuralist critique in the sense of uh, that Derrida used, um, taking uh, logocentrism to task, taking Western ethnocentrism to task. What I discovered is that Uh, the conclusion, the containment of phonocentrism in the Chinese revolution was basically an anti-phonocentric critique from the point of view of writing um, or to be more specific, the science of writing, so grammatology per definition. This is a critique that resembled but predated post-structuralism. I'm not saying that post-structuralism is the telos, but the fact that uh, we need to uh, come to terms with the limit of alphabetic writing, sometimes not from within, but also from a outside perspective, uh, warrants this view of the Chinese uh, writing system as a representative of the non-Roman Latin um, system looking into the Roman Latin um, alphabet, especially when the one and only alphabet challenged the non-Roman Latin alphabet. It sounds like a tongue twister. Um, So (laughs) here we have um, a very neat case of dialectics. We start with phonocentric phonocentric regime, phonocentrism, but then we ended up with grammatology if we walk the line that Tang Lan laid out for us to really understand the nature of the Chinese script. So as you can see, my somewhat Derridian title is actually and is in fact uh, a quite an honest and straightforward representation of what the book's main argument is about. So yeah, that's where Chinese grammatology comes from. But um, I should hasten to add that there's so much more work to be done. Basically, where I end the book is only the beginning of going back into the Uh, the nature of Chinese writing and not to mention the long literary tradition of Wen. Um, So my uh, hypothesis at the very beginning of the Three Trajectory was that if a non-Roman Latin alphabet was to encounter the Roman Latin alphabet, there must be some kind of theoretical implication. If Daida managed to wrest this huge tome of, of grammatology from Uh, The Roman Latin Latin, um, alphabetic writing itself, then there must be a lot more that one can do with the encounter between non Roman Latin and Roman Latin alphabetic writing.
1: Your answer sort of reminds me of two lines in the book, um, and I think it sort of captures it beautifully. Um, You have a line in chapter five. as though concluding the modern Chinese script revolution, Tom, this is Tang Lan, you're you're the one of the figures you follow in this chapter. Tang beckons. All grammatologists of the world unite. That is from yes. chapter five. And then there is an epilogue um, to your book, and I don't think we're gonna have time to go into it, but it it has to do with, and I'll just tease it, it has to do with your meeting um, with. A gentleman who was 110 years old, um, someone who took credit for Pinyin's international recognition um, by the International Organization for Standardization in 1982. Um, but it ends with then something that he told you and your own sort of re- reflection and conversation with the reader. And it's a line that has haunted me. There is much work to do for both language and writing. And this is how you sort of close the book so with this, it's a beautiful epilogue. Um, I encourage all listeners to seek it out. But with this line, there is much work to do for both language and writing. You are, now that you are finished with this book, what is the work that you are doing? Whether it is for language or for writing or for something else, what are, what are you working on now? Now that you're finished with this beautiful, very, very rich book that we
2: only just sort of scratch the surface on. Thank you. You're really generous. Um, I guess, yes, I, I I maybe I have already taken the words of the last custodian of this group revolution, Zhou Yu words, to heart. I have internalized it. There is much more work <laughs> to be done. And that's that's how I feel uh, when I concluded um, this critique of Chinese grammatology, a uh, critique that is grammatology. Um, what I, I am still, uh, to confess completely honestly, um, I'm still in search of the next project that would be that would be as consuming as this one, as mod- mind-boggling as this one. But in the meantime, I want to uh, set out and solve a puzzle, uh, which is also a coincidence, uh, that I discovered while working on the book. So the three uh, main representative figures of, the three legs of alphabetizing Chinese, Romanization, Latinization, and the socialist group reform. Uh, respectively, you have Zhao Yenren, Ju Chiu Bai, and then Zhou Guang. All these three gentlemen, brilliant gentlemen, came from the same alley called Qingguo Alley in Changzhou. And that's just too much of a coincidence. <laughs> I, I, I even asked this question to Zhou Youguang, bless his heart. Um, He didn't have an answer for it, of course. Um, (laughs) uh, I don't have an answer for it, but I only realized this upon closing this book, is that uh, Changzhou is very special. It's the headquarters of the old, uh, sorry, the the new uh, tech school, Jingmen Jingxue School. Um, And there was this convergence at the turn of 20th century between the old and new tech school, on the question of what to do with phonocentrism, basically, what to do with the relationship between speech and writing. And another convergence would be uh, the convergence of modern and pre modern phonocentrism. And uh, that Changzhou puzzle is going to stay with me for a while. I want to work out the convergence of the modern and pre modern phonocentrism. And at the same time, uh, explore the material- materiality of writing that came with the whole project of Homo
1: And I just want to know who else
2: came from this alley.
1: <laughs> who, who are the neighbors? Who who else is who else is around?
2: Um... Me too.
1: <laughs> All for
2: the next research project. I will report
1: back <laughs> when I know. All for the next project. Well, it sounds like you know you started off by saying that. You weren't really sure you're still puzzling around. It sounds like those are some pretty big puzzles. Um, so best of luck with that. And when you find out who else came from this alley, like who was living next to these three big figures, who were they living on top of? Um, I'm dying to know. Me too. <laughs> and thank you so much again for talking about this book and best of luck with the
2: next puzzle. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.